we are publicly shaming people at earlier and earlier ages, and we don't know sociologically what happens to kids who worry about that now at the age of 12. What do they become mentally at age 25 and 30? And what are they like as managers and leaders? I don't know. It's Professor Todd Cashton, ladies and gentlemen, and I believe I found a kindred spirit. I suppose I often do. That's part of my job, isn't it, to connect with people? But Todd is a man after my own heart with his interest in the grey zone between psychological, philosophical and political discourse at the moment. That's what I like, the grey zone, the bits between the centrist areas, the looking at both sides of things. So who is is Professor Todd Cashton. Well, he's a professor, obviously, of psychology at the George Mason University, where he is also the director for the Wellbeing Lab. You can look that stuff up. But Todd has also written some super popular and acclaimed books, including The Upside to Your Dark and The Power of Negative Emotion. I like that stuff because I always feel that we're becoming a bit bland in our pursuit of eternal happiness. This idea that any suffering at all is indicative of a disorder or something wrong in our lives when really we need some suffering for so many reasons, uh, such as building a stronger defense mechanism or just art, creative expression, art and rebellion, which is the topic of Todd's latest book, The Art of Insubordination. Todd's writing reminds me of my former guest, Professor Paul Bloom. So if you enjoy this episode, do check that one out too. I don't know when that was. It was like 50 or 100 episodes ago, but that was really good. But Todd and I discussed today in this also really good episode why rebellion is important as a counter to groupthink. We need groups. We need to get along and form social cohesion But we also need disruptors in our community in in order to advance and experiment and create. It's why I make so many episodes about the perils of cancel culture. Because any culture that stifles creative expression and people's willingness to hold an outsider view can lead to very bad outcomes. Anyway, Todd or Professor Cashton puts it much better than I do in this episode. Make sure to get hold of his latest book, The Art of Insubordination, in all the normal places. And let him know if you enjoyed this on his Twitter profile. Just look for Todd Cashton. Coming up are episodes with Dr. Shaham Das about the Watts family murders just the the other year. That was the guy who killed his family. Familicide, it's called. And Craig Harrison, who has the world record for longest sniper kill. What must it be like to be in his mind as he's looking at a person ages away that he knows you just pull a trigger and that person's going to instantly be dead, probably. Uh, And also James Altucher is coming on and he's just all round fantastic. So I hope you enjoy those episodes coming up. And and if you do, please do spread the word about this podcast. Please just tell one or two friends this week to start listening. That would be a huge help. One of the best places to listen, by the way, is on the commute, jogging, driving, on the train. I guess that's several different places. I actually read recently that driving is a surprisingly unlikely place for people to listen to podcasts. Uh, And I think it's just people don't think to do it. You get in your car and listen to music. So help me help us buck that trend. Uh, I listen to podcasts myself uh, in the car, and I think it's a very apt place to do so. But now, now, you're on the edge of rebellion and cancel culture with Professor Todd Cashton. (laughs) 
What were you just saying, Todd? You were just saying some stuff that was nothing to do with anything, weren't you? What was what was that? <laughs> I was saying I listened to one episode of your podcast, and it was the one about someone with pedophilic tendencies who didn't act on it. And it was the idea. It was it was basically an experiment for the listener. Can you acknowledge the humanity of this person and maybe have compassion for them that they have this issue? And I thought that you did such a good job where you kept the person at the forefront, you put the disorder on the back burner and you allow people to kind of decide for themselves. It's like, hey, can you go there? Can you actually see this as a full human who is struggling with something that they've got under wraps? Thank you, Todd. Can you imagine the ego it would take to, for, for somebody to be listening to a compliment about one of their episodes off air and then to go click record so that Todd can then say it again so that everyone... That is really something, isn't it? But also it's an advert for that episode for those who haven't yet heard it. It's the sixth one. So six, episode six. I have never met someone with that level of narcissism, but it would be interesting <laughs> to meet someone like that. Wouldn't it? I, I would love to find out what that person um, is like. My word. Oh, Todd, tell us a bit about your quite amazing work and background, your, your, your own quite nice, good stuff. Well, I've been running the Wellbeing Laboratory since 2002, uh, long before it became a popular topic in every Harvard Business Review article. And we study all the things people want to talk about at cocktail parties. So meaning in life, a passionate, how do you maintain passion in long-term relationships, creativity, curiosity, compassion, how do you bounce back from adversity in sports? How do you bounce back from incredible accomplishments in sports and um, happiness, spirituality, religiosity? And then the thing we've been into now is how do you break the political gridlock in society? You know what just stood out as um, we are going to talk about um, insubordination and, and how to rebel and things like that uh but i started looking more into your stuff and, and the things you've just said have also really piqued my interest uh, and the thing that you just said now which was how to sort of bounce back from success i found really interesting because i've always found that whenever i've actually done well at something which is relatively rare i have my lowest moments after so what sort of stuff have you looked in there yeah so you have this so so there's two parts to this one is so what, what I'm going to speak about about athletes is relevant to writers, business people, or parents, or anybody, it, which is that you want to develop a technique where you don't just move on to the next episode of your day, that you actually savor it. So sit back, even for five seconds, and reflect on what did I learn from this experience? What does it say about me? Um, how much do I attribute to me versus luck, other people, or some supernatural power? And then tie a bow on it as this is a feather in your narrative and then reset for the next experience. Now, what most people have a hard time doing is resetting and not letting it bleed over into the next experience. So if you shoot the winning basket in a basketball game and then you go out for dinner with your family, you're going to feel like you deserve to be at the seat at the table, to be the new patriarch or matriarch of the family, even though you might be 21 years of age. And there's something disconcerting in humanity and social relationships where we don't put beginnings and endings to episodes. I think there's also, um, do you ever watch BoJack Horseman, the cartoon series? 
no, but everyone recommends this. <laughs> You'd love it. And and he, the main character, seems to be the saddest when, when something good happens to him. Uh, he gets quite morose and people say, hey, you're special now. You've made it. You've done it. And he sort of has these moments. And I can really, and I guess a lot of people relate to it, hence the popularity of the show. I have this weird thing. Maybe you can be my therapist for a second, where... Uh, the better that everything is going in my life, the sadder I am, uh, particularly, you know, my relationship and things like that. And I, and I, I, part of it is this feeling of, oh, God, it's all so good. And now it's going to what's what now it's all going to go away and I'm going to get old and die. Yeah. I mean, this is this is Buddhism 101, which is it's the impermanence of everything in our lives. And then to what degree can we focus on the journey and the effort expenditure as opposed to winning the cash and prizes? And and we should include our social interactions and relationships under the cash and prizes umbrella. And I think the more, here it is in a nutshell, the more that you define yourself by the by being outcome focused, the less, the less satisfaction and meaning you're gonna derive from those events. But the more that your means focus in terms of, hey, me, Andrew, I was witty. I was playful. Um, this is important to me. I was incredibly good at listening. I wasn't thinking about the next question or sentence I wanted to say as I was talking to my, my girlfriend or my friend. When you can acknowledge that the means of how you're actually interacting, then there is no end on how these interactions can increase your well-being in moments and the narrative that you derive about yourself as Andrew is a good listener, intelligent, humorous. You can define yourself that way as opposed to you're trying to accomplish those attributes and win those attributes. But I'm still going to get old and die and, and I'm going to be less charming and all those attributes are going to wilt away. But there's going to be a digital footprint of all these amazing witty <laughs> witisms by you that people will be reading for centuries. Speaking of digital footprints, I really like the the sort of beginning bit. I don't know what you call it, where you say to my three daughters, my hope is you are empowered to rebel against every norm, rule, order and authority figure that warrants insubordination and you live life on your own terms. One of my life ambitions is to ensure this happens. That's my subtle segue to, to your book. Tell us about a bit about the book and, and, and what insubordination is. Yeah, so... Let me tell what the book, what, tell me what the book is not about. So there's a marketing element of the title, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. But this really isn't about insubordination. It's not really about rebellion. It's really about what are the mechanisms that we're missing about how to reach, reach a more aspirational society. So a society where people have, um, we can acknowledge people's humanity. We just talked about your prior episode about pedophilia, and then we can try to reach our potential and aspire to create a world where future generations are actually going to live better than they do now. And one of the mechanisms that people neglect because it doesn't feel good and it actually causes inefficiencies in groups is people disagreeing or dissenting with the, with the, the modal direction or the consensus direction of how things are and what people believe. And we, we really like consensus. We really like positivity. We really like harmony. Even curmudgeons, they want to feel a sense of belonging. And what the research shows over 60 years is that even if you disagree with someone that dissents, in the worst case scenario, it forces you to think about how can I make a better argument for my side that's different from this person who I think I'm having these kind of these loathing reactions towards. And in the best case scenario, you've got someone that caught an error or a mistake, a conformity mistake 
that you haven't attended to because you're so focused on listening and abiding by people you respect, like, and you want to be a member of their group that you're not attending to their frailties and their biases. There's that um, one of the worst and best places of the internet is Reddit, which I don't really spend much time there, but I've had to use it a couple of times. Do you, are you familiar with Reddit? Well, there, I'm going to suggest there's one spot in Reddit that I found that's absolutely incredible, but go ahead. Oh, just that. They have this motto, and I think it's to sort of stop people being horrible to each other. That's just remember the human. And I just love that. And I try to take that into, I sort of want to forget that it was Reddit that told me that. And I just, I want to pretend that like you or someone, a philosopher or someone just said, well, you basically did just say that. Remember the human. And that's what I tried to do with that episode, you know, that guy. Uh, and every episode, remember the human and imagine it could be me in that circumstance, who knows, and that kind of thing. But what were you going to say about Reddit? Oh, my God, Andrew, we have, all right, we are brothers from a different mother because as a researcher, since I've been doing this for over two decades, I always tell the people I work with, um, think of the human first, not the variable, right? So you've got this really popular book about grit. You've got this very popular book by Kristen Neff about self-compassion, very popular book about forgiveness by Michael McCulloch. Everybody's got, you know, their, their organ of the elephant that they're focusing on and not seeing the bigger picture. And I always say, don't think about these variables. Think, imagine humans who are engaging this. And then you can see when is it, is there a underutilization of a strength and when is it overused or used in the wrong context? When you think about grit, for example, the pursuit of things that are, you're passionate about towards long-term goals, it sounds amazing. But when you imagine an 11 year old kid, um, practicing basketball until midnight every single night. They're not getting sufficient sleep. They're tired when they're in class, but man, their ball handling skills are amazing. Their teamwork's amazing. Their vision of the court is amazing. You, but you can recognize it is both the strength and an inhibitor of them acquiring knowledge, wills, wisdom, and healthy social relationships because at 11 years of age, you don't want someone specializing to that degree. And then all of a sudden you can ask new questions about when and where is grit problematic and where is it healthy as opposed to when you focus on the variable and not the human, you get caught by Angela Duckworth's amazing stories and amazing prose and amazing studies. And you forget to think about humans first. That's funny, isn't it? Because we revere, we have such great reverence for sports athletes, the best in the world. Uh, but I suppose every instinct that you have for, for parenting would, would push, would sort of maybe warn you against giving your child that kind of life. Um, obviously, there are loads of movies made about whether it's the Williams sisters or whoever it is. That's a, you know, that's no childhood. I wouldn't want to push my kids to that extent. I would want them to sort of see bits of the world and pick up little bits and pieces and understand it instead of just like kick a football against the wall over and over again for 20 years and then reap the rewards, the rewards I suppose. Yeah, and the, and the same thing holds for, you know, stand-up comedian is you love seeing a Dave Chappelle or a Bill Burr or, you know, insert your favorite comedian. But when you ask yourself, okay, so they're gritty in terms of getting this involuntary laughter from the audience, but what are they sacrificing to get there? Because you have to be dark and you have to be, you have to be very egocentric and focusing on, I wanna use all the problems and adversity in your life to make someone else laugh in the future and you will never meet these characters. There's something a little bit dark about that. I don't want to say I, I am totally pro comedian, but it, 
it just makes you think. And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, dissenting from social norms is just to sit back and take a different, a different lens, right? Just like you're on a different, you're in a different landscape. You're on a different hilltop or a mountaintop and you're looking at this thing and you are acknowledging to other people like, Hey, maybe there's a lens that we haven't taken. Expand the time frame. Think about in five years from now, will, will we appreciate what we're doing now or, or, you know, truncate the time frame and say, okay, Considering all the problems we have right now, is this the thing that we want to be focusing on with everything happening? And the dissenter is freaking, they're like a, you know, those horse flies, big fat mosquitoes that are just, you want to swat around. And yet they're making people think better and make better decisions. I think I was one of those, but then it sounds so, um, I don't know, just, uh, to sort of suggest, oh, I'm a rebel. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm James Dean. I'm a rebel without a cause. And I guess there's a lot of us, there must be. But I just, and maybe everyone feels this way. I don't know. But I just, I know that uh, I'm a bit of a contrarian. And I know that when I was at school, whatever any, like a group of people were saying, my mind was instantly going, meh. I, 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 I didn't want to be, even if I did agree, it annoyed me. And I wanted to find another way to be or think. And I know that um, was probably frustrating for people to be around. It was definitely frustrating for teachers. What what makes some of us feel that way? Well, I think it's, we have, so when you're in a social group, even if, if you're in a classroom, you have a little, a little micro ecosystem. It's just you, that teacher, and all the students that are in that classroom. In there, you have every single person has the tension between two competing psychological needs you want to satisfy. And this is a human universal. Sri Lanka, South Korea, UK, Canada, anywhere. So one of them is you want to fit in and feel a sense of belonging as if you were cared for and understood for who you are, all the history, all the personality traits that you bring to the table. But the other one is you want to express your uniqueness and say, if I died, the group would suffer if I wasn't there. And I'm not expendable or interchangeable with another person who's in this room. I am the unique person that in your case is the contrarian that actually asks questions about, well, wait a second. Like when you talk about climate change, for example, um, what evidence would need to exist for you to question is that maybe there are parts of the world where climate change isn't affecting things. Now, I don't know if this is true or not because I'm not an expert, but what I do know is a lot of people don't ask questions about this. And when people say automatically, and this is kind of the contrarian, I, I, I would label it more as a healthy skeptic approach that I take to the world. If someone says everywhere and every place, this is a problem, my initial response is there must be context where this is okay, or it's going in the reverse direction. And the first place where I really saw this was the world of mindfulness. You know, this Mick mindfulness movement where all of a sudden everyone has kind of imported yoga and mindfulness into their lives. They removed all the philosophical traditions. So they're doing 30 minutes or 60 minute sessions of mindfulness, and then they're going right back into an urban environment on the subway and working, you know, 12 hour days for Merrill Lynch. Well, how does that work? There must be a benefit for mindless moments or else evolution would have designed human beings to be mindful more of the time during the day. And this is where, you know, Robert Biswas Diener and I wrote a, a huge book chapter about the benefits of mindless thinking. So mindfulness is not, because I see mindfulness so often now and I never got into it because my mind is so erratic and it was blah, blah, blah. I tried a few times and I know people say you've got to try for longer or whatever to, to really, but then also I thought, but I quite enjoy 
that my mind does that. I know it's not for everyone, but I like that my mind's going everywhere and uh, thinking mad stuff all the time. And I don't know that I want to think, not have those thoughts and to instead have thoughts of being, oh, you know. And whereas, you know, my cousin loves mindfulness and he loves it. And I just think that's fine for him. And and he didn't, not that he pushes it on me because he doesn't at all. I'm not sure that certain minds are capable of it. But then I think we're told by everyone that mindfulness is like the thing for us, right? Yeah. So another, so here's where you have a dissenting view, which is maybe there are particular contexts where mindfulness is the jam of jams. So if you're interacting for me with my three daughters, um, I want to be mindful in those interactions. I want to make sure I'm listening more than I'm talking. I want to make sure that I'm empathetic to whatever is bothering them from the perspective of a 15 year old or a 10 year old. And also I try really hard not to give unsolicited advice. And I'll ask them, hey, in this situation that you're talking about a problem with the boy, do you want advice or do you want support? And so I try to be very mindful and be present there. But as you're saying, much of my life is as an author and as a researcher. And I love that when I'm in the middle of a situation, it like I'll be playing pickleball. It'll remind me of... um being in Barcelona and, and seeing Gaudi's architecture, and then those things are starting to mix in my brain. I'm not in the present moment, but I can feel like something's happening creatively in how my mind is working. And I want to just go with it. Now, if that's not your thing and you're not doing imaginative work regularly, I could see that mindfulness might be more beneficial for you on a regular basis. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I like that thing about um, do you, do you want support now or advice because that's that's probably one place where we all make a big mistake, isn't it? When we're trying to help someone, and if we could just ask that question at the beginning, because the person probably doesn't know the person who's having trouble doesn't even know which one, and I guess asking them that question will help them know, and then you know how you can help them because there is that temptation to just be like, okay, advice, advice, advice. And often people don't want it, do they? They just want you to go, oh, it's it's okay and rub their back kind of thing. Yeah, well, it, it's really good to clarify in terms, what are the core values you want your life to be, especially when you're socializing? Because when you're by yourself, you can have all the different versions of yourself appear and oscillate between them. But when you're socializing, for me, I know that I want to give people agency where I, tr I assume you have the intelligence and you have the problem solving skills and you have the sense, the sense of self knowledge that until proven otherwise, you want to be the author of your own life. And so I try to give that as much as possible. I want to give autonomy support 
where basically you can figure out your own way of doing things. So as a, as a teacher, a professor at a university, I often give instructions for an assignment and I say, but if you come up with a better way, a more an original way for doing this, all you have to do is sell it to me one-on-one -on -one, and most likely I'll probably say yes to it. And so most students don't take advantage of that, but the ones that do just because that they're doing it, I wanna reward them and say, listen, we need people that are basically gonna be innovators and creators. It's the only way to have cultural and social evolution keep at a fast clip. And so it's if if we didn't have people that said, hey, listen, I could think of another better way of doing things. Um, I'm not sure we would have, you know, MRIs and we would have clonazepam for anxiety problems and we would have, you know, virtual reality for people that have agoraphobia where you can imagine with some goggles being inside of a mall and we could enclose the space. And if you get too anxious, we can increase the space. You wouldn't come up with these technologies if you didn't have people saying, I think there's a better way than just having a therapist. How do you raise your kids then? Because kids is different to students because uh, you need to obviously tell them like, you know, when I tell you to do something, like if I tell you uh, look both ways when you're crossing the road or whatever, you've got to do it, but also encourage rebellion in them. It's a great, great anecdote right there. I think one of the things is if you're going to tell them look both ways before you cross the road, you either give your rationale up front about why you do this, or you give a debrief afterwards. It's like, listen, you know what? I raised my voice. I apologize. Here's the thing. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just that you've got cars like a Tesla where you don't even hear the engine. And so if you're not paying attention, that thing will just mow you down and just Im imagine them being on a smartphone as they're driving. Now, this is, you know, a, a really modern phenomenon, but it's not something people talk about too much as as you, as the sound waves and the decibel levels of cars decreases, it becomes more important for pedestrians to be very attentive to their social environments. So that's one part. The second part is I train them as I train myself, which is be a person that leans toward behavioral evidence, not just quote unquote lived experiences of ask of like, Hey, as everybody is saying that this kid is a racist and a sexist and a misogynistic person in your high school. What's the evidence for that? What's the evidence against that? And sometimes they'll tell a single incident and then we have a conversation, which is, well, here's a good question. If they have one time where they said something and it's, it's leans towards misogyny, does it take one episode to be misogynist? How many episodes does it take? And adults haven't answered this. I've never heard anyone say, what is the point where it becomes a character logical feature of someone versus this was a bad moment for them. And I think uh, the lack of charity and the lack of curiosity in these scenarios gets us into these binds where, you know, like John Ronson's book, you've been public, been publicly shamed, where we're really we are publicly shaming people at earlier and earlier ages, and we don't know sociologically what happens to kids who worry about that now at the age of 12. What do they become mentally at age 25 and 30, and what are they like as managers and leaders? I don't know. That's a fascinating thought about the, the shaming and, and why we – because evolutionarily thinking um, – presumably in tribes and things it helps to have these mavericks as you say uh and then it would also help for us to not immediately banish someone if they have some say something that we don't quite like so and there, there, there is that feeling we all have it i mean i almost feel like i'm going around with with a seatbelt on and 
Uh, I'm going, no, no, I'm not going to jump on. If someone said the wrong thing, I'm not going to. That's just, they're a human being. There's two sides. And then very rarely, but every now and then, I let the seatbelt come off. And I enjoy and I take pleasure in shaming someone like Meghan Markle. And I hate her. And it's not fair. And it's not, I don't actually know her. I'm making a million assumptions. Um, and and so, so why, why, evolutionarily, where is that joy at, at being horrible and, and making assumptions and jumping down someone's throat when they've done something wrong? Where does that come from? Yeah, so this is the schadenfreude, the German term of taking pleasure in someone else's misery. And it's 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 this so this is the same reason we have pleasure in someone else's misery is the same reason gossip is actually socially advantageous and society would be worse off if we didn't have gossip even though it causes problems it's because our social roles are too dense we're not supposed to have this many people that we're actually interacting with and even know about their lives and because of that we can't get firsthand information of what is your bias how likable are you? How trustworthy are you? How competent are you? Those are the four questions that we want to know. And so the best way of doing this, of figuring out our, or navigating our social environment is secondhand information. And so we use gossip to figure out likability, competence, biases, and trustworthiness. And from that perspective, you can say, okay, gossip is good. So with that, you go back to the Andrew Gold maxim, which is make sure you try to keep the human at the forefront, even with gossip. And so going back to training my kids, I teach them, I'm like, listen, it's okay if you talk smack about even your closest friends, but they're not supposed to have access to these private conversations. And that is one of the few of the many problems that exists right now in society is that when it happens online, that should be a private conversation of two people unloading at the end of a Friday with a couple of pints, and it's not supposed to reach that person. And when you do it publicly and tag them, you get to what I think is the most underappreciated societal problem right now. So most people talk about political polarization. Most people talk about extremism. I think one of the biggest problems that's neglected is the speed to intolerance. And it's just that all I have to do is hear from someone I'm slightly connected with. It could be a person a friend of mine follows online who they don't even know them. And they said, hey, this person has some good content. You should follow them they start attacking somebody and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, dude, let's, let's, let's tag the company they work with and make sure that they know how bad of a person this is. And it, it takes you, you have to actually like kind of shake your head and break free from this mental paralysis and say, hold on, I am just trusting one person's second, third or fourth hand information and no one's provided behavioral evidence. Just, they just said something. And that is a, a society cannot sustain itself with such fragile threads and such speed of intolerance. I think also I strongly, one of the concerns I have is um, I'm writing a book called The Psychology of Secrets. It's, it's a working title anyway. Uh, about It's basically about the death of secrecy. Um, you know, what you're talking about in, in terms of like the privacy and people having their own private thoughts and secret thoughts and stuff. I, I was really interested in, in uh, the Johnny Depp trial. Um, 
because two people are doing something that has nothing to do with the rest of us, we are now privy to their private messages, not just theirs, but private messages of friends of theirs are now read out in the press. So there was um, Paul Bettany, the actor, and he wrote something like he, with Johnny Depp, some joke about Amber Heard, you know, we should we should drown her and something. And it was it's some it's some Monty Python skit that they redid, but it looked really bad when it came out. And I've always believed there should be it's okay that there's a private me and a public me. And there are things that I think and say in private to close friends that I think I should be able to say because they're friends that I don't think I should be able to say. I think it's good that I censor myself a little bit publicly. Do you know what I mean? I, I love this premise. There was a New York Times um, op-ed about exactly this topic. I don't know if you read it. Um, I'll have to find I should write for I'll that. have to find it. No, no, but it deserves <laughs> a book-length thing. I mean, it fits with everything that I believe in, which is it's not catharsis. So there's 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 a lot of good research, and we sort of know this intuitively that the way that we bond the closest in our friendships is not by shared affinities; it's by shared hatred and loathing that happens there. So it's the idea of like you despise your boss, you're having a hard time at year twelve with your romantic relationship, and we can talk we can talk about this. It's not public; they're not details I want to actually even. I'm not even ready to discuss with my romantic partner, but you share it, and then they give you their lens and perspective on it, you need an outside third-party perspective on a lot of the things that we're facing. We have this egocentricity bias of where we assume is that our thoughts and feelings are how other people think and feel, and we don't necessarily do checks, mental checks to see what that is. And just like the nature of your book is, we need other people to do these checks, but we don't necessarily wanna be this fragile and imbecilic in our thoughts in a public arena because we could be really off. And if and if we say something, let's imagine that like one of my kids said something very racist and I'm not sure what to do about it. I definitely don't want to be saying this publicly. I want to be like, hey, have you faced this before? Like, I, I don't think my kid is racist, but I'm worried that this is like a you know, this is like the first toke of like a joint and like they're just they're just moving into the drug world right now. And like, I, how do you stop this now without me actually labeling them as to saying doing something racist? Because I don't want them to be defensive about this. That conversation, especially in 2022, as we're having this conversation, is is the third rail. Like it is really electrified, you know, electrified territory in terms of what we're diving into. I don't want too many people there with this conversation, but imagine, as you're saying, imagine I can't have that conversation. I don't have a person that I can have that secret conversation with. What does that do to my parenting? And then what does that do to my child? And that's, that's why, you know, the, the thesis of your book is so valuable. I would say it's extremely problematic. Yeah, I think so. And I think, it, it, it's worrying as well like we've got the whole social media stuff obviously it's been talked about a lot but we present our best selves publicly and we do the same of course with censoring ourselves a little bit uh and it's worrying because if you don't have those friends around you who are going to be totally honest about who they are say say you're having girlfriend troubles but all your friends don't want to admit that they have those same problems you're going to feel really alone like you're the only one with the issue and that that works for the whole of society doesn't it so i just feel like i don't know do you worry that I mean, we'll get we'll get onto you know cancel culture and stuff. I mean, do you worry that that's quite quite big at the moment? What what your where do you stand on that? I do. The, the term has taken on a life of its own, so I like to be very precise about ex like kind of the conversations what we've discussed so far without using that term. Um, so I do have a lot of I do have a lot of concerns, especially because 
I am a university professor. I've got 75 students I'm seeing per semester. And so many of them will say, listen, there are things I want to be saying in the class, but I'm worried about how they're going to be taken off because I feel like I'm going to be socially persecuted. And when you hear this first time, 10th time, 30th time, and you hear people say cancel culture doesn't exist, I'm seeing the, I'm seeing the, the residue where it is changing the way that they filter what they're thinking and what they're saying. And when they're not able to have those conversations, it fits in with, with the book that you're writing. How are they able to form intimacy if what they're talking about is all at the surface level? Because the things that are at the, at the deeper levels, they might have controversial views or might have ambiguous views and they haven't decided on something. And if they're worried about saying something that they are lower than 50% certainty on, and lower than 50% strength about their beliefs on, and they're going to keep that to themselves, it's really hard to form deep friendships. So just, just, just take any issue. Take Black Lives Matter. And just, so right now in my neighborhood, for the past three years, there has been a banner the size of, I don't know, let's just say it's like 40 yards, 40 yards in height and width. It's a huge sign that goes in there. And if someone had ambiguous and uncertain views about that in my neighborhood, you would be persecuted pretty quickly that happens there. But if you are a younger person and you and you have an ambiguous views and you're still developing your sense of identity, that's actually exactly where you should be at 17, 18, 21, and 24. The only people I worry about are people have exact clarity about what they believe what they don't believe, who they like, who they don't like. And there's no room for error and there's no room for individuals to deviate from those patterns and those categories where they're willing to be open and receptive to people even having lunch or a conversation with. And you have to allow ambiguity in the system. And right now, we're not allowing people to have ambiguity where we're deciding of like, hey, are you on the left? Are you on the right? Are you on the extreme right? Are you on the extreme left? And can't someone have a huge matrix of views that if you heard them all, where they stand on immigration, guns, abortions, um, voting laws, um, who, you know, whether you should have someone that, uh, was not born in the United States, um, be able to run for president of the United States, uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, all these dimensions. I would say that my favorite people, have such a bizarre, jagged profile, you would be unable to label and categorize them clearly in one camp or the other. And I would encourage everyone to have a, a matrix of the matrix of viewpoints where you should not be mimicking any group with more than 80%, you know, overlap. I get really frustrated. Um, friends of mine and people I really respect, really smart people will say like, you know, uh, someone said the other day, hey, a friend of mine listens to your podcast and they said it's it's really interesting how you're able to make people who are right wing seem quite human or something. It was I, I've, maybe it was said in better words than that, actually. But still, it was like I, I think out of 160 guests, I think there have been two who were right wing. 
Uh, and the rest, a lot of them are, well, have been in cults and things, and there's been murderers and psychopaths. And it was interesting. They didn't even, they weren't saying, like, isn't it interesting you made the psychopaths and pedophiles and stuff? You know, it was the right wing people. And they weren't, right. even, they weren't even there. There's like two of them. Um, obviously, there was that Ben Shapiro thing recently, the podcast movement event uh, conference in America, where uh, they they had to apologize. The event apologized that Ben Shapiro showed up because his presence might be harmful for people. And again, that's really interesting because actual uh, murderers usually go to these kinds of podcast events because true crime is such a popular podcast. So you have murderers and sex offenders and stuff giving speeches, and you've just got Ben Shapiro, by all accounts, who just stood there smiling and taking photos of people and then promptly left he actually is right wing um but yeah it's the assumptions made isn't it isn't it crazy the assumptions because some people don't correspond no that, that was an amazing moment it, it's it just you i mean we should be worrying we should be worrying about all the isms ageism sexism racism all that uh ethnocentrism but we should also be worrying about psychological fragility and Part, part of worrying about mental health issues and part, part of trying to reduce the level of mental health problems in society from loneliness to schizophrenia is also, can we create a culture where people actually develop mental fortitude? And it's not saying that we're blaming victims. It's saying is that we know over the course of a hundred years of psychological science that we can train people on average to be a little bit more resilient to life slings and arrows bounce back a little bit more quickly towards rejections, failures, and even traumatic events. And that people can actually develop strong social networks such that they have allies to help them when they are in interpersonal conflicts. And we can acknowledge all of this at the same time. And so when when I hear of any scenario like that, where the mere presence of someone whose views you disagree with, they're in an amp like an amphitheater, where you happen to be there. And that's a, a, a concern where an entire organization has to apologize. I would say, you know, why would you assume that people are so weak and so, and, and, and so fragile that they can't handle the presence of a human being they disagree with? It's the same way where, you know, in, in my book, I talk about how I have a real problem with the term about, um, comedians should only punch up and not punch down because it makes an assumption that there is this very, stable hierarchy and there are people that are automatically below you and they're weaker than you and they're they are not even able to handle humor as a person who cares about human agency i would say if you want to before you get to do a performance go check in with whoever you think it is and ask them hey listen i'm gonna have some jokes about people in wheelchairs um i wanted to check in with you and see if you're okay with that now if you want to do that that's fine I do think it's problematic for you to stereotype someone who's in a wheelchair is that why, why would you just contact them and not every single person in the audience about what they might dislike that in terms of your content. I remember having a student in my class about three years ago, she was in a wheelchair and, um, and she, and she addressed the class in the very first day of class. She addressed a 75 person class and said, listen, you might notice I'm in a wheelchair. I don't want you talking to me and treating me because I am physically lower than you because I'm sitting down as if I am someone that is lesser than for any interaction. I'm smart, I'm funny as hell, I'm self-deprecating. Don't be afraid about making a joke. Don't be afraid about talking over me. Don't be, if, don't, don't include me just because I'm in a wheelchair. Include me because you want to actually interact with me. And I was just like, Damn, I'm like, you are the mob. I'm not saying everyone's at that level, 
But I'm saying this woman in my class, Valeria, I'm going to send this, this link to you so you can listen to this. She is my model of she's she has mental fortitude. She expressed it publicly and she's being a model to other people of saying we're not a homogenous monolithic entity just because we're all physically disabled and visible. Ask me first. Don't make the assumption. Oh, Valeria, what a legend. I like that. Oh, that's that takes strength to just I mean, just just talking to 75 people. So she's obviously very strong. But you're, you're definitely right about, you know, training fortitude and stuff, because I, I feel myself getting weaker just listening to the, you know, the zeitgeist and what we're talking about at the moment, because uh, I, I will sit there and, and hear about, you know, you have to be so, so careful about jokes you might make about any kind of um, identity. That's the thing at the moment, any identity you've got to be really careful with. And those same people will make jokes like friends of mine, I'm out for dinner with them about me picking up the bill, the check, because I'm Jewish, right? And like, I, years ago, I could have laughed. I mean, maybe not that because it's such a boring old joke, right? But I could laugh at those jokes. But I feel myself getting weaker. I suppose it's also the double standard that's frustrating me. So now I don't want to laugh at those jokes. And so now I go home going like, oh, I'm not happy about what that person said. And I don't want to be that person. But, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you know Megan Dom. She's got the uh, the Unthinkable podcast. But yes. she has a, she has a book. Name. I think the title is The Problem with Everything. And she has an essay. As someone who grew up in New York City, she talks about being, I think she's in her 40s, about being you know a woman of a certain age who grew up in New York City in the 80s. And she has this great essay where she's saying that she used to wear skirts and she would pass construction workers and they would whistle at her and they would, you know, taunt her of saying, you know, hey, good looking or whatever the phrase was. And she would give them the middle finger and say, you wish and walking backwards facing them and saying like, you could never get this. And sometimes she would pull up her skirt, sometimes depending on what mood she was. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm an individual differences researcher. I'm not saying everyone could be Megan Dom or like have her attitude, but we should at least consider that that attitude has a very healthy functional purpose. And we should not be putting that as that's not something we want to work towards um, and put that into a prism on kind of on, on the side. I would say I would be more than pleased if all three of my daughters and all of their friends reached a level where if a guy pointed out like, hey, you are one hot mama, they could look at them and say, you've got no chance in hell and just walk away and, and all their guy friends are laughing at them. And that that's to me, yes, we should criticize the guy for kind of, kind of, you know, aggressively getting in the woman's place, but let's actually be honest about, we have to see the world as it is, not as we want it to be. They, those, those men will exist for the next hundred, 120 years without a doubt. So how are you going to respond in those situations? I would love for like, for people to be trained, to have the fortitude of there's nothing someone who's so flimsy and so uninteresting and is so uncreative with their comments that they could possibly affect my psyche for the day with a comment like that. Build up people's confidence, build up their strength a little bit more rather than just tell them you're a victim. I I, I think, I mean, my, my stepmom is a, uh, well, a bit older than that, but she talks about a similar, she talks about a, you know her and and friends of hers who who would use sexuality to move up in the world and they quite enjoyed that um and, and, and you know and again it's exactly you always have to give that sort of um you know what's the word is it a proviso or what's that the word caveats. caveat caveat you know 
I'm, I'm not saying that that you know Harvey Weinstein and that's what we want with the world it's just understanding I suppose like, like I think you're saying that everybody's an individual and everybody's different and we all want different things don't we yeah yeah I mean you know if you assume that an entire demographic has the same value system and personality dimensions and motivations as they go through the world you are engaging in a form of excessive stereotyping that is problematic for that entire group and especially that individual. And I mean, the idea is if you can allow every possibility of political orientation for people that are white, why would you not do the same for every other group? It just, it seems, it just, it just seems that there are some bizarre double standards that interfere with having interpersonal communications with people don't think like you look like you act like you does that mean that i mean the people who are really enforcing that i mean what you just described at the end sounds to me like a person who has prejudice who uh, who's bigoted are these the same types of people over the centuries or the decades who just they fit with whatever the ideology of the day is and they do the thing that is racist or because they look at people as identities rather than individuals does that make sense what i've just asked yeah well i think i think what we're really talking about is why do people engage in, in conformity and it might be seemingly benevolent conformity and one of and there's there's a new model that came out by i'm going to mispronounce his name justin thibault and he basically his framework is the reason we engage in conformity is because it is good for the predictive models of other people in the social world and so if there is a queue of people waiting at starbucks the idea is that you would go into the back and not try to kind of try to pretend that you're friends with someone and jump in as the third person in the queue because you're going to annoy other people and everybody knows someone a little bit that's in that queue. So it keeps the conformity allows a structured functional society to take place. And one of the best gifts you can give to someone is that if you we had this conversation before we went on the air, which is you you say, hey, how you doing, Todd? I say, how are you doing? You said, I'm not really sure how to respond. So in some ways, we're having this very conformist, bland initial start to a conversation. And it is predictable, but you called out with a meta comment of saying, this isn't really going anywhere. Now, an alternative approach is you say- it Broke the ice. Yeah, another approach like Andrew is like you say, hey, what's going on, Todd? And I say, I say, hey, I had a very interesting morning. Like I actually- I, I tried this new Pilates workout and I think I pulled out my back muscle and I jump right into where my mind happens to be. That's a non-conformist approach. I just made it much more cognitively demanding for what comes next for your response. And that's, you take that at the individual level, you put it at the group level, we reduce the cognitive resources required by people. It's a gift. It's a gift for us to engage in conformity, but God, is life more beautiful, colorful, interesting, and then exciting by having people that are nonconformist? No, abs absolutely. I, I, to me, it's also the wording, because how are you? I can answer. Good, good, you. Even though it's conformist and boring, I can go good. But what's up is really hard, because I want... I guess nothing. Nothing, not much. Then they're, they're just quite difficult. They're not that easy. So what if you expanded the, expanded the statement and said, hey... What's been going on since the last time I saw you? So now I'm making a a little bit more of a pause and saying, Andrew, I'm interested in your life. I made, I put a little bit of a marker of the last time we interacted and now, and I'm going to allow space for you to respond as opposed to how are you doing? There's no space there. 
And you're not really supposed to say something that you actually are going on that's going on in your life. But it's these little, but it's, 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 it's these little pieces that I believe that we should really be checking in with every social norm we have that's kind of that we're thinking that's in our lives and ask ourselves, how's this working for us? The Dr. Phil question. And then what's completely dysfunctional? And this is how culture evolves. And it's the reason why we have gay marriage. It's the reason why we have, you know, you know, legislation for civil rights, civil rights voting and civil rights laws. It's, it's the reason why we're actually, we're actually have universities that are sensitive to ideological differences where you have a club for student Democrats and a club for student, student conservatives or Republicans. All of these things are as a, a result of us checking in with social norms that exist and saying, Maybe we need to make space and it's not there. So we're going to create a very clear, concrete group. So at least they can start getting the ball rolling for a group that is ideologically different from other people on the, on the, the, the you know, the campus, the campus setting. I suppose just to play devil's advocate, you mentioned gay marriage. Um, maybe the conformist stuff helped that happen because it wasn't happening for such a long time. And then it became uh, almost impossible to then be against gay. It, it turned 180 so, so it seems fast looking back because when I was younger, most people seem to be against that and people are misremembering it now. I think everyone's like, no, we were always for that. And now everyone I know, I know there are certain states that are a little bit further right in, in America in the middle states and things, but every, around where I am in the UK, I don't know anyone who would go against gay marriage. And if they did they'd be quickly sort of ostracized. So so is that something good about that kind of conformist groupy stuff? Here's what I would say. There is there is almost always a benefit for having someone that disagrees with the principle that is accepted by the majority of society. I'll give you I'll give you a concrete example of this exact topic. Um so um football, not 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 a uh, football like in the Europe, but American NFL. football. Yeah. yeah. So um, the Green Bay Packers has a strange thing where they, um, these, these shareholders are people that live in Wisconsin can actually become shareholders of this company called the Green Bay Packers. And I, I was in a meeting with all the shareholders. And then there was this one guy who was saying, um, I have a problem with the Green Bay Packers because they've been going all in on supporting gay rights, um, rainbow flags, the LGBTQ community. And I used to be a part of that community. And then I had someone help me pray it away and I'm no longer part of that community. Uh. So this guy said this publicly. Here is what I want to say with, as you're saying, appropriate caveats here. Um, I'm not <laughs> saying I agree at with anything this guy is saying. What I am saying is him saying that publicly is valuable to everyone in that room and to the organization and to the community. Now, here's the, the quick the quick rationale about this by him saying that that people might disagree with and have this maybe have as you're saying automatic disgust response or at least performative display of disgust it makes you ask the question of what what are the values of an organization for content in society that has nothing to do with sports and then second what is the decision making process for picking which which 
societal issues we're going to actually spend money on and promote and which ones we're not because they can't promote everything. They're not promoting technology in elementary school classrooms. They're not promoting, they're not promoting archaeological digs in France to figure out like the evolutionary origins of, you know, of different species. They're focusing here on LGBTQ rights. So it actually, it's pretty cool because it, it makes of like, okay, forget that we got to this. What was the process of decision making and who was allowed to have a vote in deciding what information, what evidence, and what people were involved in deciding that this was going to be an issue that we focused on. And so maybe they ended up in a good place, but the process and the structure of getting to that decision was problematic. And this is where dissent ends up being valuable, even if you despise the exact words of the person yeah. dissenting. I, I so agree with that. And I've actually talked about this before because soccer football, as in Britain, you know, football here had, does the same stuff. And I always think, I mean, the only, I'm sort of, in a sense, I'm, I'm happy that I am Jewish because I can actually, with some minority stuff, I can look at it and see. And I wouldn't want an anti-Semite to have to sit there and like salute the Star of David. I would just want to think, okay, he's free to think and do what he wants. And he makes, you know, when they're in a group, they can make my life difficult. And it's because of people like them that, you know, my sister has to go to a school that's got like security all around it. It's like a prison. Uh, but he can think what he wants and we'll try and debate them, you know, a, 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 rather than force them to do my thing. And with football, English football or European, oh, South America, well, I <laughs> even as I'm talking, I'm worried about offending people where football is also played as, as in our kind, football with your feet kind of thing. Um, um, and I know American football, they use their feet sometimes as well. So yeah, our football, I go to the game, Tottenham game, and there are like five things that the entire crowd has to like salute to or cheer for. And it was one after another after another. And they're on all sides of the spectrum, but it's like, who's choosing these things? And one was LGBT rights. And it's just like, I mean, I am, I, you know, for LGBT rights, absolutely. But I also just want to watch a, a game here. And I know that some people in the crowd might not you know, they might not be against it necessarily. They might not be homophobic, but they might also find it uncomfortable. It might not be who they are. Then a minute later, we've got to do a thing for the armed forces, which tends to be a bit more of a right-wing thing. They tend to be more into that. We all have to wear a poppy on our as a symbol on our shirts. And it's just like, well, what if somebody doesn't like the armed forces? And there was a whole hoo-ha about it because there were a couple of players in the UK. One is, I think, Serbian and another one was Northern Irish who have issues with the... Um, British armed forces for historic family reasons, you know, and they have to wear the poppy on their shirt and they have said they didn't want to and it caused madness. And it's all about forcing everybody to have the same ideologies that everyone else has, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is where I think of, we should be, so the whole thing is, it's not about increasing rebellions and dissenters. It's about permitting and embracing con constructive disagreement. And it's not the person's comment that leads to the constructive part of this agreement. It's what do you, what do you do with that content afterwards? Now, there is something to be said about the delivery mode, but some people, you know, some people are not, not everyone's a good public speaker. Not everyone's eloquent. Not everyone has a good vocabulary. And so, and those are other people and people differ in their ability to manage their emotions. And so if people get really irate, that is disproportional to the issue that you're talking about, I think we have to have enough charity to say, I'm going to separate um, your emotions, which are pretty strong and you acknowledge pretty strong for the situation and say, okay, inside what you're saying is a good nugget, which is how did we arrive at a decision that we we're going to salute 
servicemen and women at, at, at the stands and, and salute and service, salute and kind of like acknowledge and appreciate the LGBTQ community at a football game that happens there. And that's where I think it's really valuable. And just take this whole conversation and now transfer it to the educational setting and transfer it to the corporate organizational setting. And these are not conversations that are taking place, which is, hold on, there are so many causes that in terms of like, why this, it's like the Passover question, right? We're both Jewish, like, you know, why this day over all other days? Like why this issue over all other issues? And I think about this at the university setting where, um, you know, we're not focusing on poverty. We're not focusing on class issues. We're focusing on demographic diversity representation. Now for, for right now, let's just say, I'm not gonna state my opinion on this, but it's that why that issue over those other issues that are happening there, they're all relevant to, in terms of the types of people that can get into the educational system. And this is not American, this is basically almost worldwide, is there's an element of class issues that come in here. In Calcutta, I mean, still to this day, 2022, if you are a streetwalker, which is funded by the fact that you have Johns that are buying the services of streetwalkers, their children can't enter into the public schools in Calcutta. Now that's, it's built into the system. And so that seems to be a pretty important issue in terms of social mobility that nobody's talking about how do we actually intervene there and protect these young, innocent children that have nothing to do with their parents' occupation. Um, and they can't basically be educated and then get out of their social situation, econo social economic situation that they're in. We choose these things. And when it ends up being an organization that's not focused on charitable, where you allocate charitable money, then there, people should be raising, people should be raising these questions. They shouldn't be raising, they shouldn't be raising, um, a ruckus in terms of saying that they're wrong, but they should be asked, asking questions. And those questions, the, the questions should be, should re receive a receptive audience where you're actually going to have a conversation as opposed to saying, if you have to ask the questions, then you need this workshop and you need this training better than everyone. And that's a very unfortunately common response to people who are showing some constructive dissent. It's quite cultish, isn't it? And thought terminating. Yeah, it's, it's problematic because it assumes that we're all, we're all reading the same newsletters, the same blogs, the same, the same newspapers. And the thing is that not all of us are focused on culture issues. Some of us are just really into video games. Some of us are just happen to be really, you know, really into, you know, whatever, Dungeons and Dragons and board games. And, and we shouldn't assume that everyone has access to the same information. And so it's really hard to keep up with the new terminology. It's hard to figure out what is socially acceptable today versus last year. And not everyone's on social media. I think the last number was um, less than 10% of society is on Twitter. And yet now you have major mainstream news news sources are using Twitter as a form of news. And what what about the other 90% of society? But it does drip down a little bit, doesn't it? Often from the educated people, you know, at universities and the richer elites, they'll often start fashions and things that do, I mean, if I'm talking about fashion itself, I mean, the Burberry was a really big example where the the, the aristocracy were wearing it. And then, you know, the 
the normal people started wearing fake rip-off versions of it and Burberry were in a bit of trouble then because then they were associated with not with the you know the aristocracy anymore but obviously ideas as well that happens with and it comes from Twitter and the sort of educated people and sort of sort of filters down a little bit so it's it's a little and then isn't that you said like using not everyone has access to the vocabulary I sometimes that feels like that's kind of the point isn't it it's it sort of you know, to show off that you've got this special vocabulary and new words and thoughts and things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, we have these two psychological needs, fit in and stand out in groups. And one way of showing that you fit in is you basically show a replication of exactly the terminology that's being used. And many a times, um, this is where it raises my skepticism. When I hear someone doing, what's the term when you have um, uh, the, uh, the land acknowledgement apology? The, oh, uh, it starts with an R. It's but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, re re reparations, land reparations. No, there's just like like an acknowledgement that uh, the land had the land was was uh, was owned by indigenous group and then it was taken over by a prior group historically and then now you're going to acknowledge that you're going to acknowledge the land's original ownership. Restitution, land restitution, uh, returning colonized land, land back hashtag. <laughs> this is terrifying how many terms there are for this. Yeah, yeah. But, what, but when, I, when I see that in someone's Edenell signature and I see someone talking, what I'm hearing is, okay, I know where you, I know where you stand politically. It's very clear. And that's what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's a very simple heuristic of saying where I stand. My view which is not normative, is that the best compliment that students can give me is say, by the end of the semester, I have no idea where you stand politically because I'm just trying to teach people critical thinking. And I don't want to prosthesize about who they should vote for or what they should believe. I'm like, here's some evidence. You should be skeptical of the evidence and be asking, is the sample size big enough? Um, were they asking the right questions? Um, is the data skewed? Uh, what are the variables that they thought they got to include in their study? And so there was, there was a big controversy yesterday where the New York Police Department's um, head officers released a report about crime statistics over 2021 and 2022. And I read the report and the report focuses really fully on one single variable, which is race. And it just shows us that the number of stop and frisks and the number of murders, assaults, and robberies are much higher for um, people that are black than people that are white. And so I got into this whole exchange of people of saying, I'm always skeptical when you use a single variable to describe a very complex phenomena. And so everyone's saying, because everybody was tagging me and saying, what do you think of these numbers? And I was saying, it, no matter if, if the data were, were reversed and it showed that white people had more murders, more assaults, more robberies, um, I would have the same response, which is, I don't know how this intersects with economics, neighborhoods, um, the crime in neighborhoods, um, the, uh, the level of police presence that are in those neighborhoods, where cameras are. And so if you're only focusing on a single person level variable and you're ignoring environmental neighborhood variables, um, I can't. I, I, I remain agnostic about what those data mean until you include other variables in the model. And the same thing is that if you were to say that, which is, which is a lot of scientists do and say conservative people tend to be more closed minded than people that are, that tend to lean liberal or lean progressive. I would say in terms of conservative people, how did you include them as one single category as opposed to a series of dimensions? The best the best way to measure someone's 
where they stand on a liberal to conservative continuum is three dimensions. Where do you stand on fisc fiscally, fiscal policy or economics? Where do you stand on foreign policy? And then where do you stand on social issues? So you have three different dimensions that are interacting. And so unless you're going to explore the interplay between those three dimensions, I think describing the personality of a typical liberal and describing the personality of a typical conservative is already way too simplistic to capture how, how complex and heterogeneous these groups are. You would imagine that they're taking quite people who are quite far on all of the three conservative, which if you did with the far left, you'd also find the similar closed mindedness. If you people who are far left on all of those uh, different things, man, it's it's concerning, isn't it? I, I suppose it's um, it can, I mean, in a world like this where you can't rebel, I mean, when when it gets quite, do you, I mean, do you feel like we are a bit um, more sensorial? Is that a word? Yeah, sensorial. Yeah. I think so. Then nor. <laughs> then oh, you know what i was going to say actually um what you were saying reminded me a little bit of uh, i'm quite obsessed with the statistics around race on british tv because i was told i couldn't make documentaries anymore because i was a white man so i often check these things i couldn't be on screen on the tv is what the producers told me um and like the way they do the stats like you say it's it's insane and the the ones that the media pick up on so one of them is that women for example make up only something like 35% of directors on british tv channels and that that needs to improve or something like that but i had a look just the other day at that because i was looking at off screen as opposed to on screen roles like mine because uh, i was just thinking okay maybe the problem is off screen and i saw that women thing and then i saw that showrunners who are much higher than directors, they're in charge of the whole thing. They're like 80% women. They're like the top of the top. It's dominated by women. So and nobody ever talks about that. And if you do, it's like, oh, I, hate, I must hate women or something. But I just feel like, why patronize women? Maybe they wanted the top job. They've gone for the, they're in charge of the, the directors report to them. I never, I never heard of a show. I don't even know, I don't even know what that is. It might be, it might be a, I don't know if it. Is that the, is that the producer? Uh, it might, I suppose it's like bigger than a producer. The showrunner is like responsible for, it sounds like a small role because runner, a runner is like an assistant who gets you coffee, but the showrunner is like the, the person responsible for the entire thing. They, they are mostly women in British TV and as are producers. I mean, so this, I mean, one of the ways that psychology and the social sciences have responded to this is try to be as transparent as possible for all of your data and all the variables you include or didn't include. And I think there's a lesson to be learned society-wise in terms of, as you're describing, like you, like you know the industry in terms of documentary filmmaking better than me. And so you can list here, here are all of the, all the titles that exist that are involved on a documentary film. And you can kind of rank order a good chunk of these in terms of what their value and prestige and salary is. And from there, then you could ask, here's the reporting and here's the small, thin slice of roles that they focused on to get to, they already knew the outcome they wanted. And they, so they limited the amount of variables that they focused on to get that outcome. And that's a lack of transparency. And that's, that to me is where it gets problematic, where you get people that are unnecessarily have to be skeptical because we don't know how many variables are. And, and as I was saying for this police report in terms of understanding crime in, in New York state, um, the, if you only focus on individual variables such as age, sex, and race, well, you've included, you've not included all the neighborhood variables. And you also haven't, you also haven't included in terms of how is this related to, um, any reduction in, 
in officers that were hired, fired, left, or quit since the last year of reporting that happened there? Does that disproportionately affect particular neighborhoods? So there's all these interesting variables that have to be studied together to figure it out. And if you prematurely decide on an answer because it, the data work out the way that your political ideology works, that is what's problematic is that we should stay intellectually humble enough to say is that be careful of very simple solutions or 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 simple ideas to explain very complex phenomena. I mean this calls this comes from Carl Sagan is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Is there is there also something I'm just thinking about with with races and I don't I don't know presumably uh, at least in the UK I don't know there's a higher portion of of people who are you know ethnic minorities there'd be a higher percentage of them who are second third or fourth generation immigrants which would mean that they're less likely to be on solid ground with regards to contacts and things like that whereas somebody i mean my my own family is like third generation you know and there was a lot of poverty in the first couple of generations uh and and got lucky at one point where my my dad did particularly well or whatever so that's going to affect things as well isn't it I mean, I think, I think you have different problems for different sectors of society. So you have the intergenerational transmission of wealth. If you have people that were black living in the United States and they are the descendants of slavery, you've got three generations of the lack of accumulation of wealth and property that's going to, going to affect people now. So that has to be a variable that you have to consider. And then similarly, with a different mechanism, you've got immigrants where as you're, not only the resources, but also the social networks where you might not, you might know one cousin that, you know, that lives in Boise, Idaho, and that's why you move there. And then you don't have the connections to figure out, I'd like to get to this college or how do I get to Hollywood or how do I get to, you know, Austin, Texas, end up working for a bookstore over there. Um, you're not going to have the connections. And so it's going to take a few generations to actually not just build the social capital, be able to transfer it over in terms of um, have you know having that social connective tissue. It takes it takes time. Different mechanisms, same, but but you end up at the same current problems that exist. Man, it's so complicated. Todd, where can people get your book, The Art of in, in, The Art of Insubordination? Uh, it's everywhere. So it's on Amazon. It's on uh, Ten Bars Noble, and according to Instagram, it appears it's apparently it's in a bunch of airports all over the U.S. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I always ask people where can people get it, but it's just like in the book places. Get it in the book places, but it's just an excuse to mention it again, isn't it? Well, people, please do go and get it. Uh, it's a, it's brilliant. It's an amazing book. Amazing man. What a lovely man Todd is. Everyone get the book, please. And uh, yeah, Todd, <laughs> thank you for being on the edge. No, I appreciate I appreciate all the provocative questions. I think uh, we are not having sophisticated discussions where we can kind of dive deeply into some of these very important societal problems. You're going to get fired after this comes out. <laughs> oh, F every podcast, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much to my lovely guest, Professor Todd Kashtan, my new friend. I hope he has filled at least some of you with a vague or strong feeling of rebellion without even a cause. Or perhaps you have several causes. Support my guest by getting hold of the art of insubordination in all the usual places. Link in the show notes. And follow Todd on Twitter. Say hi. Tell him you enjoyed his appearance on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. 
I'm trying to make this into a more interactive community, you see. Get everyone talking to each other. Sign up on patreon.com slash Gold to help support the podcast and get ad-free episodes. Not everyone can afford to do that. I certainly can't. But then you can help, as I was saying before, by telling a friend to start listening. If each of you told one or two people about this podcast, it would be a heck of a lot more sustainable. Get listening in the car. Not enough people do that, remember. And I think it's just such a nice thing to do to sit back with a podcast on a long drive. A lot of truckers do get in touch. They know what's what. They listen to podcasts on their journeys. So here's to you, truck drivers, lorry drivers, and all the drivers, even the pedestrians. Leave a review on Apple if you're enjoying this. That also helps to secure the big guests. Here's one that was five stars from Joe Before You, who wrote, in the United States that is, fascinating, unique and refreshing. I'm a single guy in my early 40s. I've been listening to On The Edge for about six months now. What I enjoy about Andrew's podcast is every time I play one, I feel like I'm sitting down with a friend. Brackets, Andrew. (laughs) And meeting a new person. Brackets, the guest. No political rants or extreme view here. Andrew's kind demeanour and willingness to listen allows his guests to open up, giving us the listeners insight into the guest's real thoughts and feelings. I feel like Andrew draws out his guest true honest thought in a sincere manner not an easy task the lineup of guests are a mix of big names and unique interesting individuals many of the guests i don't personally like or agree with their views or life choices however andrew never allows a rant and i leave with a better understanding of the guests thoughts and a broader understanding of different world views Andrew, keep grinding these out. I appreciate your hard work. Thank you, Joe, before you. What a lovely, well-thought-out message. I really do appreciate it. And it does fill my heart with joy. I know this sounds like a sort of, I don't know, maybe a rehearsed or a marketing spiel or something, but... You get, especially because I've got the YouTube channel, remember that, because you guys listening, you're listening on the audio, Spotify or Apple or CastBox or one of those, but uh, a lot of people are now watching on YouTube. There's nearly 17,000 subscribers at the time of speaking. Um, it's going up about two or 3,000 a month. Um, it's September 2022 for those listening in the future, uh, but you get a lot of horrible messages. So when I wake up and I get these emails that go, you've got a new comment, or a new review on Apple, it's... Uh, a bit of a nervous moment because I, I click it and open it and it might be a horrible one-star review. That does happen. Uh, but it's really nice when I see a nice five-star one and a nice message. Uh, it does honestly brighten my morning. And uh, I hope this episode has brightened your morning, afternoon or evening. I sound like the Truman Show. Uh, but yes, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, good night or something. Uh, yeah, see you soon. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.